Welcome, by the way. Good to see everybody. How is everyone this morning? Good? Okay. Uh, we're, we're continuing a conversation we started last month, which was called Gospel in Context. And the idea of the conversation last month was to say the gospel, uh, good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, is always translated into a context. It's always translated into a story, into a group of people, into a, a time of life in the world. Uh, we talked about that for three different weeks, and today we're going to start now focusing on particular contexts for the next couple months. So for the month of October, we want to talk about what does the gospel have to say to questions about race and racism as we we're having that conversation in our culture, in the, in the United States culture. Um, and next month, we're going to turn a corner and say, what does the gospel have to say about work and, and the work that you're doing whatever kind of work that you're doing day in and day out. Um, and so this intentional conversation about race uh, starts from a few different places. Uh, one, because we're having a national conversation about race, whether you're participating in the conversation or not, there's a conversation happening. And it seems like uh, in that conversation, there are more people butting heads and not being able to find any common ground uh, politicizing views and polarizing their views, then there is progress. And I even sense from people that I have conversations about race with that, they, that they're so nervous about it or they're so passionate about it that it's hard to have a good conversation. So let me tell you that my hope is that the conversation that comes out of our church as we continue to grow in our ability to have that conversation would be one that's mature and respectful, recognizing that we're all coming from different perspectives, recognizing that Mill City is increasingly a multi-ethnic congregation, and that part of our calling as Christians is to be able to sit and listen to other people who may not agree with us uh, in terms of our perspective, our background, or even our politics. Heaven forbid there'd be a different political view in the room. Does, anyone, does everyone know that there are different political views in this room? Let me clue you in. There are. How do we learn to have those kinds of conversations as a church? Um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a season of life. It's not a generation where we can be a church the way God wants us to be and duck the conversations that are going on in the rest of the country. So we're going to dive into this and say, what does the gospel have to say about the conversation and issues surrounding race that we're talking a lot about now? So one way to get at this was just to start naming the different motivations for why the church should talk about race. So one question would be, why should the church talk about race? And as soon as I wrote that question down, I realized that's a total white guy question to ask. Because if you're, if you're not a white person, if you're not a person who's in the majority culture, then you don't get to ask, why should we talk about race? You're in the conversation whether you like it or not because you're living it. Um, and yet, churches seem to either have the conversation or not have the conversation for lots of different reasons. So here are some of the ones that I, that I labeled. One is because we're moving towards a multi-ethnic society. And while some of you maybe grew up in more mono-ethnic settings in your neighborhood, in your school, or in, in the workplace, that's increasingly not the case for lots of us. And we need to know how to engage with people that are different from us. That's a great reason to be having the conversation. Some churches are having this conversation because of the racial tensions that we have in society, recognizing we need to address these tensions and figure out how to move forward. Some of churches are having this conversation because 
the church in the U.S. is still largely divided along racial lines. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said in the 1960s that the most segregated hour in America is on Sunday mornings. And while there's been some progress in that since the 1960s, there hasn't been a lot of progress. And most churches, whether they're um, whatever ethnic background they come from, are still mono-ethnic. Mono Another reason is because people want to go to a multi-ethnic church. Anybody, anybody come across this yet? Steph and I get this conversation all the time. Um, and it's a really interesting one to me, that, that we want Sunday morning, or we want the representation of our church to be multi-ethnic, because lots of us have the conviction that that's how it should be. And yet, the majority of, cult, the majority of churches, 97% of churches, are not multi-ethnic. So I just want to put this in front of you to say, let's wrestle with this this month and say, if people want the church to be multi-ethnic, and it isn't, what's going on there? Uh, a lot of it has to do with the relationships of those of us in the room and the way in which we express church and attend to cultural differences music preferences, uh, ways community takes shape. That's why some churches are having this conversation, because people want to go to a multi-ethnic church. Other folks are having the conversation because there are significant racial injustices that we need to be aware of if we aren't already, and they want to have that conversation in their church. And this list could go on and on and on and on and on, right? The bottom line is, we need to be having this conversation as the church and as Mill City Church, and so we're going to dig into it today. I want to tell you a short story about one of the ways that I became more aware of how important this was when we were starting Mill City Church. So in 2008, a group of about 30 people started Mill City Church, and one of the things we did at the beginning was to take a class called City Matters. Anybody ever participated in the class called City Matters? A few of you did. Okay. So the point of the class of City Matters, hosted by a church in North Minneapolis, was to help a group of people who were less aware of the issues that were facing the city of Minneapolis to become more aware. And one of those conversations was about how questions and issues of race had shaped the city of Minneapolis. So, uh, Phil, give me my map that no one's going to be able to read, will you, please? Thank you. Okay, so this is a map of the city of Minneapolis from 1935, okay, 80 years ago. And you can't read it totally, but in the upper left-hand corner, is North Minneapolis, and the river kind of cuts through the middle here, and then Northeast is in the upper right-hand corner, and then the big chunk of gold on the bottom is Southwest Minneapolis, down around the lakes. The chunk down there in the Southwest on this map is labeled the Gold Coast. Okay, you guys are connecting the dots? All right. Then the area up in North Minneapolis has a couple of different names, but mostly it's labeled slum and Negroes, okay? And, and then in northeast Minneapolis, there's a big yellow dot at the top, and that's labeled lower middle class. And then underneath that, right near the river and Nicollet Island, it says foreign born. Now, there's some debate. I dug into the history of this map a little bit, and there's some debate about whether this is just descriptive, that they created it to just say this is what was, this is where people were living, or if it was a plan, planned thing. I tend to lean towards the side that it was more of a plan than just descriptive. This is sort of where we see these types of people living. And when they used this map in the class, when we were getting ready to start Mill City, what they were simply trying to say was race and people's perception of race 
had a huge part in forming the way the city of Minneapolis is shaped. So it's not an accident that people live in certain parts of the city. It's not an accident that some of the parts of the city are more affluent than others. Uh, in fact, part of the education was that post-World War II, mortgages were given mostly to white folks and only to white folks in certain part of the city. So if you weren't white, it was much harder for you to get a mortgage if you could get one at all. And if you were going to get a mortgage, it was only going to be in the parts of the city that were already assigned to your people group. I don't know if that's new for most of you, but it was somewhat shocking to me when I learned that in 2008. Um, and you get, you get the sense, even by looking at something like this, to recognize if you're in the majority culture, if you're a, if you're a tall white male like me, it's part of your privilege to just not have a clue about this. And to be made aware of it is a huge first step for those of us who find ourselves in that particular situation. Thanks, you can take my map down, Phil. You can find that map if you just Google um, map of Minneapolis 1935 if you want to take a closer look at it. So if we want to have a conversation about how the gospel is translated into a context, if we want to say, how is the gospel translated into North Minneapolis, Northeast Minneapolis, Southwest Minneapolis? If we want to truly know how to love our community in the name of Jesus, then we have to wrestle with the questions that race and racism create in our society. And, and here's my sense as I think about our church. I think that many of us who are part of Mill City, uh, we're not opposed to this conversation. Most of you that I know, you're part of this church because you want to have this conversation, no matter what your ethnic background is. And we want to be a church that talks about these things openly and honestly and creates space for people to learn and people to say stuff that's maybe offensive and have someone that loves them say, hey, you probably shouldn't say that that way because it's offensive. Here's why. Let me help you understand. But we also have a group of people in our church who are really afraid of being wrong or saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And so part of our maturity, I think, is, is asking the question, what small steps can we take to start having this conversation more intentionally? And how can we give each other grace to maybe, maybe say some things or do some things that might be offended, offensive and say, hey, let me help you understand that from my, from my perspective? Um, I, I see the breaking down of some of these racial barriers as a huge part of where God wants us to go as Mill City Church. The steps that we're going to give you this month are really simple. They're, they're about prayer, which I'm going to focus on today. Next week, my friend Daryl Gillespie, Pastor Daryl Gillespie of Proverbs Christian Fellowship, an African-American church on the north side, who I met in the City Matters class, will be here preaching and teaching us about eating with people who are different from you. So we'll talk about prayer and eating and listening and worshiping. And on the final week, we'll have an opportunity to hear from another pastor here in northeast Minneapolis about how we can be worshiping together with people who are different from us. And I think in your program today, there's some of these opportunities outlined if you want to take a look at it. So what if we prayed and ate and listened and worshiped with people who weren't like us as some first steps towards figuring out what does the gospel have to say about race? Here's my overall hoped-for learning in the month of October. Phil, if you can put this on the screen for me. It's simply this that we need to cross racial and ethnic boundaries in order to understand and live out the gospel. In other words, we don't have a choice in this. 
if we have had a choice, it's probably because of our privilege, and we need to learn to cross racial and ethnic boundaries if we want to understand and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not an option, but a necessary part of what it means to be a gospel person. That's our starting point, and that's what I hope the whole series helps us to learn more about. So before we turn to the scripture today, I want to define a couple things. This is maybe under the category of boring but important in terms of being able to understand the teaching this month. Um, What does the gospel have to say about race? Well, let's start with some sort of definition of race, if you can put that up for me. Many of you maybe know much more about this than the reading that I've done on it. The idea of the word race or the, the concept of race is actually not that old. It's only a few hundred years old. And race is primarily a social construct, something that we've created, that human beings have created, to separate groups of people, mostly by physical appearance or by where they're from geographically, and create a hierarchy of human value, meaning some people are more valuable than other people. And historically in the world, the more white you are, the more value you have, the less white you are, the less value you have. That's what race is. It's a social construct. Now, the word ethnicity, if you hear me use the word ethnicity, this is what I mean. It means that um, we're referring to the combination of language, heritage, customs, and cultures that have shaped who you are and and who God has created you to be. And when you hear people say multi-ethnic, they mean groups of people who come from different language, cultural, traditional backgrounds. So... Race and ethnicity, in my view, when I use them, I'm going to be using them very intentionally and very differently in that race is a way to divide people and label them and create value statements about them. And ethnicity is trying to get more about the the positive parts of where we come from and who we are and what that means. And our definition of gospel, as we've been using it, is um, simply that the good news that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. What does that mean for the conversation about race. And finally, um, as I said earlier, I need to start by acknowledging that I have all sorts of biases on 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 this topic. And in many ways, I feel some fear of talking about it with you too. Because I know I'm gonna say something that doesn't make sense. And I invite you to come and have a conversation with me about it if I do say something over the course of this month that doesn't make sense to you or feels like I'm not seeing something or I have a blind spot, help me see it. I'm wanting to help create some space for us to learn together and have this conversation, but I'm an educated white male who grew up in America. And so I have that perspective in some of those biases, and although I've worked hard at trying to recognize some of those things in my life, I don't see them all. So I'm likely going to make some mistakes. So the blind spots I have that prevent me from being able to see those things, would you please help help me see them? I want to take you to a story in Acts 10. So if you have a Bible or a phone or a tablet or some new device that allows you to see the Bible in 3D, has anybody come in with one of those yet? Look at Acts chapter 10 with me. I'm going to be reading most of the whole chapter today, and we're going to be unpacking this passage for a number of weeks, so we'll be in the same passage for the month. Uh, It's a story about crossing ethnic, religion, Um, social political boundaries with the gospel or how the gospel forces people to cross those boundaries even when they're uh, maybe they're not wanting to or not aware that they need to. 
And so we're going to be talking about Cornelius and Peter. Cornelius is somebody who works in the military and is charged with keeping people safe in the Roman Empire. Peter is a religious leader in the Jewish tradition who's become a Christian, follows Jesus as an apostle and a teacher in the church. Here's how the story begins. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that happened and sent them to Joppa. Let me pause there. So this man Cornelius is part of the Gentiles. Gentiles are defined a few different ways, but mostly they're just non-Jewish people, people who come from non-Jewish backgrounds. In this case, we're told that Cornelius was already somebody who honored God and feared God. So maybe in our culture it would be like people who have an understanding and a belief in God, but they wouldn't necessarily associate that with Jesus. And he was known in his community as a strong leader, a person of position, but also somebody who cared deeply about the poor. And the message from this angel is, the good things that you've been doing for for the people who are in need in your community has, has come before the Lord, has come before God. And he wants you to meet this other guy named Peter. Now, you have to remember that Cornelius having this vision would be terrifying because you meet an angel, it's terrifying. But it's also terrifying to say, I now, as a person who's in authority over another group, have to send some of my men to that person's community and say, I don't even know why, but I need you to come back and talk to me. So imagine yourself having some, some part of your life with God tell you, you have to go and reach out to somebody who's not like you at all, and, and you don't know anything about, and have them come and tell you something that has to do with who God is. That would be terrifying. But Cornelius gets these men together, and he sends them on to Peter. So now here's what's happening with Peter at the same time. At noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. 
While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to come ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So Peter, who's on the roof praying, has this amazing revelation that God gives to him that basically says, all of the things that you've thought were unclean for you, things that you couldn't eat as a Jewish person, that you've been taught since birth to avoid, now you can eat them. Try to imagine that scenario for yourself, right? Something that you thought was exactly what God wanted you to do and you've been trying to honor it your whole life gets reversed. And he's on this roof and he's having this vision and he's trying to figure out what it means. And within minutes, there's three guys at the door and the Holy Spirit says to him, okay, these are the guys. I'm not going to wait for you to figure out the vision. The guys are downstairs. Go down there and meet them. And Peter is starting to put together pretty quickly that uh, there's a huge theological shift taking place in this moment. And Peter would also be aware of the fact that if he starts to associate with people who are non-Jewish, and he starts to even share the gospel with people who are non-Jewish, he's going to have a whole lot of explaining to do from the people who are back in Jerusalem who, are his, um, who have sent him out, who have empowered him. It would have been a huge theological shift to say, not only am I going to eat with Gentiles, but they're part of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. That seems kind of regular to us now because most of us are Gentiles. But at this time, this is a huge cultural and social change. So let's see what happens when Peter gets to the house. The next day, Peter started, started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. So there's some people that are going with Peter on this journey. The following day, he arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So they get to this house and Cornelius has all these people gathered because he's expecting the guys to come back with Peter. As Peter enters the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. So Peter walks in and the dude falls down like worshiping him, grabbing his toes. Do you greet people that way when they come into your house? And Peter when he's greeted this way, says to them, stand up. I am only a man myself. In other words, I'm not a god. Don't worship me. I'm just a guy like you. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, here's the disclaimer from Peter, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Huge shift here in a matter of days for Peter. You know that we have laws that don't allow me to associate with you, 
but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Any connections to the racial conversation that we're having right now? So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answers, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So give us a message. Then Peter begins to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is a hugely important verse. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. And we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is my favorite part of the story right here. As a preacher, it's my favorite part of the story. While Peter was still speaking these words, in other words, the sermon wasn't done yet. He had more to say. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. God was done with the message at that point. God was like, okay, that's plenty. You probably have more planned. These people are ready. You, you don't have to talk anymore. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on, even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordained that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Amazing story. Amazing story. And one that's so important and relevant for the racial conversation that we're having in our country right now. Here's a couple of things about why it's important. One is because Luke, who's writing this, is making it excruciatingly clear that it's God who's driving the change, right? He goes way out of his way to tell you and show you. This side of the coin, this side of the conversation, we had to let them know that they could reach out to somebody different from them to hear about who God is, Cornelius, through the angel. And Peter, who wouldn't have gone if God hadn't taken a miraculous step and said, here's a vision for you to know that you can step across boundaries that you've previously had in place for yourself 
that I, I am not concerned about and I want you to cross. And it's only because God has taken those actions that these people are having a conversation at all. And this is one of the things that I think the Christian church has to contribute to the conversation about race. It's not just about politics or equality. The question we ask all the time as Mill City Church is essential for us to move forward in this conversation. What is God doing in the midst of interracial relationships in breaking down even the concept of race and saying, I do not show favoritism to people. But I honor everyone who respects me and fears me and does what is right. Doesn't matter where you're from, where you were born, or what you look like. Isn't, does that, is, um, is that obvious to everyone in the scripture today? I just want to stop there and say, is that obvious? Can we agree? You would have to make a verbal sound for me to know if you agree. I know that's risky. Okay. So if God does not show favoritism, and Peter has to be taught by God, the same as Cornelius, that we have to cross these, these boundaries in order to see the second important point, which is the gospel, as it takes root in human history, does not allow for these boundaries to stand up. If it did, this would be a predominantly Jewish religion. It would still be a Jewish sect. But it isn't. And it isn't right away in the story. It's not like a hundred years later some non-Jewish people jumped on board. It's immediate. And God's Spirit forces the people who are more likely to just stay with the folks that they know and where they're comfortable outside those comfort zones, across boundaries they don't want to cross, in order that the good news of Jesus Christ can be heard not only by people who haven't heard it yet, but back to the people who are sharing it originally. Because the truth is, you can't really understand or live out the gospel until you cross racial boundaries and ethnic boundaries. Because someone from a different background is going to res res um, frame up and share why it's good news that Jesus is both Lord and Savior to them in a very different way than what you understand. Yes? And so the thing we learn, at least in this story, is that two men who are praying, two men who are in God's presence, are in a spot where they're paying enough attention to God to be able to hear an invitation to cross a boundary that they otherwise would not have crossed, and they have the courage to respond to that invitation from God. So here's where I want to conclude today, and I'll invite the band to come up. In terms of being able to pray, it's one thing to pray for racial boundaries to come down, and we need to pray for those things. We need to pray that God would break every chain that we've created that's not from God, that we've created to label people as a different set of values when God doesn't see it the same way. We need to pray for that. But we also need to pray for two important things that we see in this story. So write these two things down, will you? We need to pray that we would be more aware of where these racial boundaries exist. And that's especially for those of us who are living as a, a majority member of majority culture at the moment, whoever you are, with me. We have to be more aware. And one of the ways to be aware is to invite someone who's not like you to tell you why you're not aware. Okay? The second thing is that we have to be, we have to be praying and asking God, where's our chance to cross the boundary in our regular everyday life? 
Who are the people that come to your mind that say, if I was paying attention, it's totally possible that God may allow me to develop a relationship or have a conversation or deepen my relationship with somebody who doesn't look like me? If we start there, simple but difficult things to do. How do I become more aware of where these racial differences are affecting us and my life? And how am I praying that God would give me an opportunity to cross that boundary? And then we're in this decision-making place that Peter's in where you're, you're sort of looking at that and saying, okay, am I going with God or am I not? Because I believe that God is inviting us into crossing these racial boundaries. And as we learn this month to pray and eat and listen and worship with people who aren't like us, we're going to grow in these two areas. But it starts with praying. And so I want to pause here before we worship. We're going to sing this song that's called Break Every Chain to really invite God to help us to see where those chains need to be broken and where those walls need to come down and take these first couple steps of prayer. So pray along with me, will you?